Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. There come certain passages in the Bible that a pastor dreads to be able to preach or to be able to teach from. Uh, They can fit in different categories. Uh, One of the top of the list is genealogies and passages like that we have, passages that we have here before us tonight. You might call them uh, name passages. Uh, And let's face face it, everyone gets to passages like this and uh, Bible reading plans and things like that. And when you get to uh, Numbers or Chronicles and they start listing genealogies, Uh, We might let out an internal sigh, sometimes an external sigh. Some of us might pretend to read uh, through the list of them. Others are honest when we get to these lists and we skip to the next part, the good part, we might say, uh, and we move to the next passage. Uh, They can be difficult to be able to read, um, but uh, as sometimes convictions uh, make us Uh, honest and convictions make us uh, be able to challenge passages like this. Uh, We all believe 2 Timothy 3.16, but when we come to passages, name passages, we really want to, you know, put a qualifier, an asterisk next to that first word. All scripture is breathed out by God, and we want to say something like most of it. We don't want to change theology, but what about these name passages? Um, you know, it's it, convictions. If you hold to them honestly, they they put you in difficult positions. And when we say all Scripture is breathed out by God, we mean all Scripture is breathed out by God. Um, they're hard. They're hard to uh, preach. Uh, they're hard to be able to read them uh, out loud. To be honest, <laughs> uh, they're difficult with all the names. I, I, hopefully I'm getting better at reading biblical names, but uh, I still have a long way to go. So then how do you approach a passage like this? I find it exactly the same as you approach any other passage. Uh, you come to the passage and you study the passage, you dive into the passage. You're not looking necessarily for verbal constructs of logical thought as we might as we're reading through Romans uh, there you can see the progression of Paul's thoughts. But uh, ultimately, any passage that I come to, I come to as a student and I come to asking questions. I ask questions, why is this here? Uh, you know, why is it in the Bible? Why is it here within the Bible? Why is it now in Second Samuel chapter 23 that we find this name passage of David's mighty men? Why not in another portion of the Bible? Who is on the list? Uh, to be honest, you know, sometimes just reading through the names of the list, sometimes things um, uh, stand out. Uh, why then do they stand out? What is the structure of the passage? Where are the differences? Where are the similarities? What you end up with doing is letting the Bible then answer those questions for you, not to be able to then let uh, you come up with your own answers to those questions. Um, but even the questions that you're asking are coming from the Bible. Uh, so here's some of the questions I wrote down when I began looking and studying at this text. How am I going to pronounce all these names? How many names are there? Uh, is there any structure to the names? 
what, uh, what about statistics? Is there any relevance to numbers in this? Why does the author, Gad or Nathan at this point, include this in 2 Samuel? Why does he put it here in 2 Samuel? Are there any other connections to other passages that help us understand this passage in particular? How does this passage then point us to the gospel and to Christ? Do you think they would notice if I missed this passage this week and moved on to another? Uh, But (laughs) let's start first with maybe some uh, interesting facts about uh, these men on the list. Here in 2 Samuel, we have 37 men. Now, some have tried to be able to fit this number into 30. You read through this passage and you read David's 30 mighty men, leader of the 30, um, strong among the 30, and they try and fit them in by some form of strange math. Uh, Others then come to it and say, see, there's not 30, therefore the Bible is dishonest and lies. Um, It says 30. Uh, But there are more than 30. Uh, I count 37, depending on if uh, some are doubled up or not. Uh, So how do you then explain this discrepancy? Uh, Well, David reigned for 33 years in Israel. He reigned for seven years in Hebron. Chronicles explains how they come, uh, how they actually came to be his mighty men. Um, And even Chronicles, 1 Chronicles um, chapter 11 and then chapter 12 lists a lot more than 30 men. Uh, So you have a period of 40 years. Now we know at least two of these men on this list die within within David's reign, Ashahel and Uriah. So you assume that this then is a group of 30, and it's always a group of 30, but what happens when a Ashahel Ahasuerus dies or Uriah dies. The number is not 30 anymore. It jumps down to 29 until you can fill that spot of 30. So over the period of David's reign of 40 years, you must assume that some of these men, although they are mighty uh, men of war and valor, that some of them might have died on the battlefield or even some of them died from old age. So therefore you have a rotation system where there might be close to about 30 men who are uh, in this specific group. Um, so you have all of these examples, um, even in in First Chronicles chapter 27, when they're told about the rotation of who's leading and when. In verse 7, we're told that... Um, uh, in verse 7, we're told Ahashael, the brother of Joab, was fourth, you know, the fourth month, for the fourth month. And his, his son, Zebediah, after him in his division were 24,000. So we're told that uh, uh, Zebediah then replaces Ahashael when he dies. So we see even this in the Bible to be able to explain this. In all of these things, I just want to be able to say that often when people come and, and come to passages like this, they see a, an apparent contradiction. They're quick just to assume the Bible is incorrect. And they come with their presuppositions that the Bible is incorrect. Therefore, we have uh, a, a slam dunk argument. But often I want to ask those people. I don't deal with them often through commentaries and stuff. I just want to ask, like, is there any other way? Is there any other reason why this could be the way that it is? They're often, I think, just really terrible arguments. So they read the Bible so woodenly that they, they just don't try and place it within history and try and understand that. 
for them, there's only one possible answer rather than trying to think about some other rational answer that might come there. And they assume that the authors of the Bible are just idiots. They just assume that uh, Christians for centuries, uh, millennia, have, you know, are just idiots that never have seen this. And, and I, I, I really do believe that um, they don't come to it and ask honest questions. But they try and uh, even try and tell us that there's 37 in all. So they didn't, even if that's the case, the author then doesn't go back and reread his work. It's just merely just thrown together, and, and that's not um, an understanding of how the authors of the Scripture, how uh, Jews, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, protected and, and recorded the Scriptures, recorded them, and, and watched it. You know, we have such clear, accurate accounts of how that all came together. Um, and, and just for me, it's just a simple answer of death and the period of time which David was reigning. Um, you, you even then see at the end uh, that they notice that there's 37. The author says right at the end in verse 39, 37 in all. So they even counted 37. So again, I think just they, um, they don't, uh, don't honestly ask good questions. Now I believe uh, Shemaiah, uh, uh, Shema appears twice in verse 11 and then again in verse 33. Uh, but we're told in verse 32, the sons of Jashan, so I think there, there at least has to be two sons um, to be able to uh, count them. So they're unnamed. So that's how we get to 37. Now between Second uh, uh, Samuel 23 and First Chronicles 11, which are parallel passages, and then again in chapter 12, we have a list of about just under 100 names. Of these, about 99 names, we can find out there's 10 sets of brothers, with Joab, Abishai, and Ashahel being the only set with three brothers. Uh, more are kin and from similar family uh, tribes and, and names. The most popular names during this time, there's three that repeat, uh, Eliel, Jeremiah, and uh, Jozabad, and the most uh, Almost every tribe is mentioned within Israel within this name. Benjamin, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Judah, Levi, Manasseh, Reuben, and Simeon. All the tribes are mentioned in First Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, so you see here the unity which is found there. Uh, you even find there's different nationalities. Zobah, the Hittites, which are the Assyrians, the Moabites from Moab, the Ammonites from Ammon. So here you're left with statistics. You could even come up and just by looking at the statistics, come up and be able to seek to be able to apply principles such as the kingdom work is family work. You see that all these uh, family ties within this and also tribes. And, and uh, so you see that the kingdom work is family work. You see the kingdom work is about unity. You have within the tribes of Israel, you have all of the tribes represented within this large period of name. But also the kingdom work is about uh, diversity. You have not just within the tribes of Israel, you have David underneath David's rule, uh, nations coming and fighting and nations coming and fighting and, and being able to come up to form ranks where they're actually fighting and, and commanding armies as generals. So I think there are valid things for us to be able to consider. I think that uh, we could focus on those 99 names, but let's uh, draw our attention really to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 
So what is the main emphasis and how do you find it out? Uh, for me, I want to look at the structure. I want to try and understand the structure. And often the structure speaks and, and tells, um, tells what the passage is trying to explain. Structure for me is, is the, the bones. You want to take the flesh off to see the bones. And from the bones, then you go back. And sometimes it's very difficult when you're preparing sermons or something like that. You see the structure so clearly, but then you've got to try and put the flesh back on the structure to be able to make it all cohesive in what you're trying to then move forward. And sometimes that's a challenge. How do you then communicate this in a clear way when the structure seems to be, you see the structure, but then how do you um, move that forward? So for me, structure is a big thing. So first with structure, I want to understand about context. Where is the context of this passage? We've, we've explained this time and time again as it, each time we begin uh, in the, this last latter section of uh, 2 Samuel with uh, you know, chapters 21 to 24 that there's one unit and they're broken up into six parts uh, about six different stories or periods. So chapter 21 at the beginning, uh, you know, part one is David's problem, uh, problem in David's kingdom. God's wrath, and that's part one, and uh, the second part in the end of chapter 21, the strength of David's kingdom, his mighty men, and then right in the middle here you have uh, the hope of David's kingdom, the Lord's promise, the hope of David's kingdom, the Lord's promise, both of those, the songs, the psalms, his last words, his oracle, um, it's the center, and then again you moving out from the center, you have David's mighty men, and then a problem of God's kingdom, God's wrath uh, once more. So looking back to the past, we also uh, can then see also the future. Not just how David's kingdom was when he reigned, but also what is it going to look like after David is gone? How has David's reign changed Israel? Is it for better or is it for worse? When we uh, did our study in chapter 21, we saw that, it, that what we saw was we saw other giant slayers like David was a giant slayer. We saw people like David in positions of leadership who, who continue to do and fight the Lord's battles for him. We see David's kingdom, kingdom was filled with giant slayers. That uh, These four descended from the giants of Gath and they were fell by the hand of David and by his, the hand of his servants. So we saw even David's men were doing the work. They were doing the work for King David, but David, uh, underneath David's reign, they were said that they fell by the hand of David. Now, David didn't kill these giants. These men, these mighty men, these four mighty men that we saw in, in chapter 21, they slew the giants, but yet they did it uh, through David. Then comes in the center of those two songs, those psalm and that oracle where David had spoke to the Lord the words of the song of the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So from the hand of David, he slew the giants, his servants' hands slew the giants, and then what does it say right in the very next verse? After the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. You see this similar theme throughout all these passages is that David's, uh, the Lord is the one that's delivering David, and David is the king. And then underneath David, you have these, these servants of David who are carrying out uh, David's work, who is serving uh, God the king. The God is the one who gets all the glory for all this deliverance, but he uses these mighty men to be able to do it. And then chapter 22, 23, that, that center part shows us that God used David as a humble king, and David's kingdom is filled with godly men serving underneath David. 
So you see now the past, how did David reign and rule, and then the future, what is it going to look like? We can also see the author of Chronicles understood the list of names. He lists them at the start of David's reign, not at the end. And he explains right at the very beginning, before he goes into the mighty men, he said, Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him, a, to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So you see here that uh, the, the author of Chronicles isn't trying to, um, you know, directly before he goes into this, he explains what happened. Um, they, they supported David as king. They made him king as David. This unity within David according to the word of the Lord um, concerning David. With that in mind, the structure of this passage, now we understand where it fits within uh, this whole section. Uh, the structure of this passage is really quite simple. You have, uh, to begin with, the, the three mighty men, then you have three anonymous men, and then three leaders, and then the 30 men. So you have the might of men, the value of men, the ranks of men, the men of honor. We'll begin now with the three uh, mighty men, the might of the men. We see this in verses 8 to 12. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshab, Bashibeth of Teclamite, um, Tekemonite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. The next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of uh, Ahoyhai, uh, he was with David when they defiled the Philistines and gathered there the battle, and the men of Israel withdrew and rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was uh, Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harite. And the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, uh, there, where there was a plot of ground full of lintels, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked great victory. So you here have three mighty men. These come to the, the top um, of all of these list of 37 men. Uh, Joshab, Bashia, Beth, uh, he may be from the hill uh, Hakila, um, but we find out that he had a spear, and with this spear he killed 300 men at one time. Now, uh, this is the same person that we find in First Chronicles chapter 27. Um, he is uh, Jeshobim, the son of Zabidel was the charge of the first division of his first month, and division was 24,000. He was a descendant of Perez and was chief of all the commanders. He served for the first month. So we find out here that he is a descendant from Perez, so he's from the tribe of Judah, uh, David's clan. And we find out that he is uh, quite a, quite a man, mighty man of, uh, to be able to kill uh, 800 men at one time with a spear within one battle would mean that he, uh, within one battle, was able to kill 800 men by himself. Um, you think about that song that they sang about Saul. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. And here, um, uh, uh, 
Joseph uh, was able to kill 800 men within one battle. So he's 80% of Saul's stats within this short period of time. But we don't find out more, much about him here. Uh, but uh, he does rise to the top. Uh, then we have Eliezer, the son of Dodo, uh, 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 Ahoyai, uh, known as the Ahoyites. Uh, Zelmon in 28 uh, is from this same circle of tribes, uh, kinsmen. Uh, but we find out his story that as he's fighting, all the men withdraw and leave him in the middle, and he continues to fight. First Chronicles tells us that it's the field of barley that he's fighting in. And we find out that he fights so much that his hand becomes weary, wielding a sword. And, and this is not a small, uh, tiny sword um, that we would, you know, play fight with. It's a real sword, sharp, uh, heavy metal to be able to um, dismember people. Um, and here he is swinging that sword around and his hand becomes so weary that it just clamps down. Uh, he's unable to move it. But notice the contrast here. You have uh, this mighty man here, Eliezer, and then you have uh, the contrast of, of the men of Israel, the men uh, during this time. And what do they do? They all flee. They all flee the battle. And they only come back at the end to be able to take things for themselves. They're not willing to fight the fight, but they're willing to take all the things. And then the third of this is that we have uh, Shammah. Uh, again, we find out a, a story about how he, he battles the Philistines in a lentil field. Again, what do we see? The men all flee. But then what does Shammah do? Shammah gets together and he continues to fight. Um, you have here these three great powerful men. But in the midst of this, we notice a couple of things. We highlight their power, their, 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 be able, their power to be able to go through all of this. But then also... Notice um, their perseverance. A.W. Pink noticed how valuable uh, are the Eliezers of history. When through unbelief, lack of zeal, or fear of man, the rank and file of professing Christians are giving way before the forces of evil, then it is the opportunity for those who know and trust the Lord to be strong and do exploits. That here you have... Um, that you have... Uh, Throughout history, we have people that are willing to stand up and fight and to continue to fight when everyone else is fleeing, when everyone else says, it's nothing, don't look here. We have people that continue to do that through perseverance. But I want to show you something else that there is highlighted in this section in verses 10 and 12, a refrain that comes up uh, several times as we look at these two stories. And that's in verse 10, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then in verse 12, and the Lord worked a great victory. Now David here is a great man of God, but then here these men are listed, and these last two, and we assume also it's talking about uh, Joshab, uh, is, is the same. That God uses these men as he used David to be able to win about and cause victory. That you could say they won only because of these two men, specifically in this passage, Joshua. You might also say they won that day because he killed 800 men with the, the spear. But here you have these men, but often, how often we would only focus on David. We think about David and all the things that he did in this kingdom, but here you have these great men that were able to fight battles underneath David. 
And again, we do the same thing in the New Testament. We have Peter, Paul, John. But we also have long lists of people within the New Testament that we wouldn't even know where, where they are. Men and women who served uh, God and Christ and His church. They might get a mention in some of the epistles or names. And, and you, got it. you have to assume that that's not an exhaustive list. Like this would not be an exhaustive list as well. I mean, even Second Samuel tw- chapter 23 is, is minimal compared to what you find in First Chronicles 11 and 12. There's a lot more names in First Chronicles 11 and 12 than there are in 23, Second Samuel 23. So here you have these unspoken heroes. They're spoken here in this chapter. But we look at David and we've gone through David from chapter 16 all the way to chapter uh, 21. And often we see the hand of some doing the work, but here we find out more people are working that God is using within David's kingdom. You know, you just think of Epaphras, uh, the church in Colossae, you know, that, uh, or the end of Romans. You have uh, a great list of people, of people there who are fellow prisoners with Paul. They're known, um, they're known to the apostles. They're, they've, they've known Christ longer than Paul. But we have Paul's letters. We don't have uh, Junia's and uh, Adoronicus. Um, we don't have their epistles or letters or understand anything that they've done. Epaphras's work of Colossae and Colossians. We don't have any idea of the, the labors that they did, but Paul mentions them. So here you have these three men here that are elevated, that get their name mentioned, but we see behind the curtain of David's reign, there's people working and serving underneath David, carrying about his um, deeds. And then the next portion that we see in uh, chapter 23 is the value, uh, the three anonymous men. And we see here the value of men in verses 13 to 17. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. And the band of Philistines had encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David then uh, was then in the stronghold in the garrison of the Philistines, and then at Bethlehem, was then at Bethlehem. And David the longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Uh, do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went to risk their lives before? Therefore, he would not drink it. And these things the three mighty men did. So here we have a story of these three mighty men. We do not know. They're nameless. We're not told who they are. Uh, but we would find this story roughly around Second Samuel chapter 5. Uh, so we hear, hear these, these stories that are pieced together at the end. And we find this story has to happen before David goes in to be able to take Bethlehem. He's living uh, uh, He's, he's uh, in Hebron before this, before he becomes and sets up his base, home base in Bethlehem. And here... Uh, where we find out in Second Samuel chapter five that this is when David um, takes over Jerusalem, um, and this establishment of the city of the capital of Israel, his fortification of the city and building a palace there, his victories over his enemies, 
and the Lord's presence and support throughout these uh, events. So you, during this time, you know, the surrounding areas, the Philistines were encamped in some of these places. Um, and we're told here that uh, at the start of his reign, he has the same thing uh, that we see at the end. Uh, Joab reminded him right in chapter 19, um, when Joab came to him into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. And here, right before he becomes, you know, roughly around when he, in the seven-year marker, roughly, of when he becomes king of Israel finally, he says, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I shall do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went to risk their lives? And yet when he's fighting Absalom, Joab's rebuke brings him back, maybe even to this point, maybe Joab is one of these three men, where he saw this and he's reminding him, remember that time when you poured out the water and you said, I'm not going to risk lives like this? But Joab reminds him, you don't see the value of men as you once did. You would much rather all of us be dead and Absalom be alive. But right at the beginning, David shows that he sees value in his men. How different that is to Absalom and Saul, who seem to have no apparent uh, value of life in his men. Absalom was willing to spill blood to be able to you know, chase his father across the country to be able to get the crown that was upon his head. Saul would do the same thing. And he understands right somewhere in the beginning of his reign, whatever point or marker, definitely not towards the end, there's, he's not greater than these men. He, he sees that his life is valuable, but also their life is valuable as well. We see this again in chapter 24, that he is still a shepherd who tends the flock that he has been given under his care of Israel. Next part, portion of this is the three leaders, the ranks of men. You see this in verses 18 to 23. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zerorah, the chief of the thirty, and wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them, and won a name beside the three. And he was most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, uh, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kab- Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab, and also went down and struck down a lion in the pit on the day when snow had fallen. And he had struck down an Egyptian, a Hampson man. And the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah uh, went down to him with, his sta- with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the one and name beside the three mighty men, and he was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David sent him over his bodyguard. So here you have three. Now, uh, somewhat Joab is mentioned here. Joab, uh, when we see uh, Abishai, the brother of Joab, uh, we know that he's the commander of the army. 
But if you notice in this list, he's not specifically labeled within all of this time. We know that he has a rank amongst all of these people, but he's not specifically mentioned in here as serving within the um, the, the 30 men. Um, maybe he's, he's known to the people have... Who, the author who's read Second Samuel and he thinks he doesn't need, you know, the man who needs no introduction, uh, no, no need to mention it. Maybe that he, he sees that his actions actually aren't, are not in line with David and how he was to rule into his moral standards of his leadership. And he, he, his point here is trying to prove that what type of David, kingdom is David ruling and reigning, but what type of kingdom will he leave? The men that he's trained up. And Joab doesn't make the cut. We're not told. Maybe it's because of his lack of loyalty. Uh, we see this, uh, his lack of loyalty in David in, in coming texts. We'll see how he is quick to be able to betray. Quick to be able to turn his back. Um, but again, maybe the list is just not meant to be comprehensive. That there's more men that could have been listed, as we see in First Chronicles chapter eleven and twelve, but here they're just not mentioned. Um, now he is mentioned, um, and I think that uh, he's mentioned here as a part of the story amongst the three. I, I would imagine the anonymous three or these three here that we have: uh, Joab, Abishai, and Benaiah. Um, uh, so here we have, and he served. He, he does have a rank as a commander of the army. But here, this author highlights in verse 18 to 19, Abishai, and we find out that he is the chief of the 30. That here, he's uh, mentioned before in 1 Samuel chapter 21, in those four men that are those men of honor, that wall of honor that we saw there in chapter 21. But we find this refrain again, that he did not make it to the three, but was the top of the 30. And then Benaiah, uh, we find out his rank. So we have the commander of the army, uh, Joab, the chief of the 30, Abishai. And then we have uh, Benaiah uh, is a bodyguard. Now, one of my favorite stories here uh, is one of these random uh, men that you don't hear a lot about. But here we have recorded in Scripture a great uh, memorial of his actions, um, of what he did um, uh, you know, we have, uh, I think one of the great lines here is uh, Benaiah, uh, a doer of great deeds, a doer of great deeds, uh, a great accomplishment to, wouldn't that be a great thing to put on your, your tombstone, to be known to others as a doer of great deeds. Um, but we also find out that his father is uh, Jehoiada, and he is actually the chief priest at this time. So here his son is. Um, and his son seeks to be able to use his position to be able to serve the king, again, not in some luxurious position of power. This would have been on the battlefronts. And he serves the king in another capacity. He serves the king, not through being a priest and serving in the temple, but through uh, his leadership. Um, uh, here you have, um, yeah, uh, Benaiah. But we also see some stories that he killed a lion in the snow. Um, again, we're to be reminded of David. What did David do as he tells Saul of what he had accomplished as he was prepared for war in 1 Samuel chapter 17? That he killed a, a bear and a lion to be able to protect his sheep. We're not told the details of uh, why he killed this lion, but we're told about when. 
but we also told that he defeated an Egyptian. Um, handsome man. I don't know why that comment is there, but it is. He must have been very handsome for it to be recorded in this. Uh, but it says that he all he has is his staff, and he comes up against this Egyptian. And he is able to then take the staff, uh, take the spear from the Egyptian's hands while he has a staff. And again, it, it brings us back to that story of David and Goliath. What did David have? Goliath has all these weapons that are described in great detail about their size, their, their weight, their, their scope. And then what does David have? You know, he has his little slingshot. Um, and David uses a, a small weapon to be able to defeat him. But then he also takes Goliath's weapon from him and cuts off his head. So here you see some parallels here. But one of the chief things that we see, his rank here, is that of a bodyguard. Now in all of this times, even Absalom, his own son, wanted David dead. And yet uh, here you have uh, Benaiah who uh, seeks to be able to be his bodyguard, an important, trustworthy position um, that here uh, that Benaiah has. We find out uh, earlier that Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, um, was uh, over uh, Cherethites and the Pelethites. And, uh, and then again, in chapter 20, we also find out that Joab was commanding the army, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was the commander of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. So it's not only that he just had his role as a bodyguard, a trustworthy position, he was also set, up, set above all these other uh, men. Now we find ourselves uh, probably at a time where it's uh, good for us to be able to stop, but I think let's just uh, think again about difficult passages like this. We'll continue on next week as we continue to go through this. But uh, to, to come to passages like this, they're very difficult. They're difficult, but it doesn't necessarily... They're difficult because they're different from how, what we're used to. So, but it's not necessarily that they're, they're completely foreign to how it is structured. You know, there's still stories in here about what you're doing. What are you trying to... What's the focus? What's repeated? Why, again, has it been telling? And I think if you go through passages like this, you get to see um, how, how and why we believe that all Scripture is breathed out. Now, it might not be the most favorite verse. You know, I doubt you go and ask someone, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And someone says, well, I love this story. You know, the handsome Egyptian being slain. You know, they're not popular verses. But it doesn't then mean that it's, it's not God's word. But here we see, and we'll, we'll see this again next week as we continue to go through the 30 men. You have all of David's men, and they're serving David, the loyal king. And so, too, the same principle applies for us today. That who, do, who is our king? Well, we don't have King David. We have King Jesus. And yet he has all these servants who come and serve him to do his uh, duties, you know, battle. Again, we fight, not against flesh and blood. But here we are. We hope and pray that we are Christ's mighty men and women serving God in capacities of being able to lead and, and copy as, as these copied David, we would emulate Christ as we do that. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com.
Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.